Hi everyone, Anthony here. Just want to tell you all that I have not one, but two books coming out very soon. The Organised Writer is a book you've heard me mention on the show before. It's the first productivity guide, especially for writers, by a writer. That would be me. If you're feeling disorganised and overwhelmed, it'll help you get a grip on your scheduling calendar, get more written every day, organise your files and working space better, and lots more. That's coming from Bloomsbury next month, available worldwide in paperback, ebook, and an audiobook version narrated by me. So if you enjoy this podcast, you should enjoy that too. Then there's the North American release of The Exforia Code, the first Brigitte Sharp cyber espionage thriller from Pegasus Books. I know a lot of American readers were frustrated when the initial release of Exforia Code wasn't available over there, but now it is, and that is coming in hardback and ebook. And to celebrate its launch, Greg Rucker, the guest on this very episode, and I are doing a virtual bookstore event with Brookline Booksmith in Massachusetts on Monday, October 12th. But of course, being virtual, you can come along no matter where you are. Details of that are available at their website, which is brooklinebooksmith.com. All right, enough of the plugs. Now on with the show. Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the comics writer and novelist, Greg Rucker. Greg, welcome to the show. Hi. So just briefly for people who may not be familiar with your work, tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Greg Rucker. I have written somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 novels or novellas uh, and countless comic books um, for big two in quotes publishers meaning marvel comics and dc comics and their uh company corporate owned characters as well as creating multiple works of my own in what we refer to as the creator owned sphere primarily for oni press and image comics um and i have just been awarded my first uh screen writing credit for The Old Guard, which is uh, now available on Netflix, starring Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane and other wonderful actors uh, doing exciting and entertaining things. Yeah, I mean, that's at this stage, that's probably going to be what most people who aren't into comics will know you for in the same way that yes. you know most people now know me for Atomic Blonde. Also Charlize, funnily enough. Yes. Um, it is... I mean, without wanting to leap ahead too much, it is unusual for somebody to, for a comics writer to have their work adapted and then write the screenplay themselves. Uh, you know, that it, it does happen, but it is rare. So do you want to briefly just go about how that happened, how that came about? Well, it came about because when we made the deal, the conditions of the deal this time were that I would get the draft. And when you're writing a screenplay in Hollywood, you know, writers are notoriously low on the totem pole and are interchangeable the way people change their socks. Um, so that it wasn't a terrible risk for Skydance when they acquired it, I think, to say, well, we can give him a shot. <clears throat> 
and the contract stipulating when it was done, there are certain stipulations, according to the Writers Guild, when you enter into this kind of thing, that you do a draft and uh, you take notes and you will do a second draft and then a polish. And nowhere in most contracts that you will encounter is there a provision that says, and you cannot fire them. And in point of fact, every studio and or production house relies on the fact that they can fire you and will fire you and replace you as many times as necessary with as many writers as they would like. And this is why and how you end up with movies that will have multiple names on the screenwriting credit or have a story by credit. So what makes this, I wouldn't say unique, but perhaps unusual is that, you know, and as, as, as you stated at the top, I'm primarily known as a novelist and best known as a comic book writer. I am not known for writing for television or for the screen, despite having done both. Um, That this movie was pretty much all my screenplay, that's somewhat noteworthy. Because, and and you get this a lot in the same way that uh, there's a misconception, you know, when people hear, oh, they had to go back and do reshoots, right? Or they're still working on the screenplay. There, to me, that is a very ignorant, the, the response that that means there is a problem is an ignorant response. Yeah. Every writer knows that the process of writing is one of revision. And, you know, the, 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 the hoary old chestnut is nothing is finished, only abandoned. And when you are engaged in any collaborative work, then you have multiple voices, ideally, all working to make the best thing possible. So, you know, the draft that I submit in January of 2019, you know, that is, you know, maybe my fifth or sixth revision, but we're still technically calling the second draft because I have been working off of, you know, the notes from the director and and so on. That's part of the process. That's not... It's not indicative of a problem. Exactly. Yeah. That's and and to and to then say that it is uh, 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 from the exterior to say that it is it, it betrays an ignorance, and from the interior of it to claim that there is, I think, um, betrays an ego. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, and I, I mean, I don't want to. Uh, ascribe too much to what is possibly a coincidence but that's interesting given that we had pretty much the same experience with atomic blonde now i didn't write that but kurt yonstad who did write it he only did two drafts and then they started shooting and yeah sure there's stuff in there that is not in the shooting draft you know there were lines that were changed and what have you on set sure as you say that happens all the time but it's interesting that it only went through a couple of drafts and and that was it and there was no question of firing him and bringing on other writers or anything. And, you know, both starring and produced by the same woman. So, I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe there's something there. Yeah, it's, it, it's Hollywood in particular thrives on the myth of auteur theory. And, you know, one of the reasons I've always loved working in comics, um, and I say this only half-jokingly, is that I can't draw uh, so that it is by definition for me a collaborative endeavor. And I like collaborative endeavors. I think that in collaboration, you can create something that is more than the sum of its parts. And I say this as a guy who's written many novels, and you write a novel alone. 
You know, there's no other way to write a novel. And you're not writing a novel by committee. You may write in a writing team, but at the end of the day, it is it is an entirely different level of collaboration. And to pretend that a motion picture is anything other than a collaborative effort um, is absurd. Yeah. I mean, it's just absurd. Well, and even, I mean, you can extend that even down to the lowliest indie film. I recently made an online, I wrote and directed a short online thing, which was filmed while we were all in quarantine, you know, using Zoom. That was literally me and two actors. That was it. That was the entire crew of the film. Uh, And even that, even that was a collaboration. You know, there's no way that I would try to claim that I made that film by myself or something because, no, of course not. You know, it's all discussion and, as you say, collaboration, and that makes it greater than the sum of its parts. And if you're doing it right, I think, um, and in particular, and, I, and I'm leery of speaking with too much unearned authority here, but, <laughs> you know, a screenplay is a very different type of writing than a comic script or prose novel or any of that. And one of the things I think that a screenplay is best um, analogous to is it's an architectural document. And if you have done the work of the screenplay well, then you have provided um, everything you need to build, in this instance, the story of the movie. And that means, for instance, that the performers uh, are freed to ad-lib you know, where inspiration is given, there's a window for inspiration to enter the process. It is not, um, it is not draconian. It is not, uh, it, it is not a walled garden, you know, for lack of a better way. And, and, you know, it's funny. I've, I've, the response in particular to two of the characters in the film has been really, really passionate for, for Marlon Kanzari and Luca Marinelli, who are playing Joe and Nikki. And one of the funniest moments in the movie is an ad lib from them. Um, and I remember, you know, I was on set for that when, when they shot it and hearing it come over the monitors, I, you know, I turned to Gina. I was like, we have to keep that. That has to be <laughs> in. It's just perfect. So let's rewind a bit. How did you? Get, and I'm, I know this story. You and I have known one another for a long time. Are you going to, you're yeah. about to ask. All right. How yes. did you get started? Why did you become a writer? Those are two different questions. Which one first? Let's go with the why. I think I became a writer because it was the only thing I was actually any good at. And that when faced with a choice of things to do, I could uh, double down on the thing that I had determined I had some facility at (laughs) and was willing to work very, very hard at to improve upon or pursue other things where perhaps I had some talent, but was going to have to work even harder to get better. (laughs) Um, You know, for a very long time, I had wanted to be in theater and having spent some time with some tremendously talented actors. um, I remember having a moment where I sort of saw 
uh, I could do this. You know, I, I could I could actually do this for a living. I could do it. But the heavy lifting involved for me to get to the place where I am that good that I can make a living at it, I am not certain I am I am there. I'm not certain I love it enough to do it. And I think that that's really an important part. Um, there is, you know, so many people start writing because it's fun. And then they stop writing when it isn't. It rapidly stopped being fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I will tell you right now, and again, you know, you know the truth in this. It's only half tongue in cheek is that nobody in their right mind would choose to be a writer. It is miserable. It is isolating. It is physically uh, dangerous. It is reductive. It is, if you're doing it well, it is uh, an attempt to always improve and and, and thus you are never satisfied. Right. Any writer who turns to you and and says, I know everything there is to know about writing is somebody you want to stay away from at all costs. This is not a most, not even most art is not a terminal profession. It does Mm -hmm. not have a point where you can say, I know everything there is to know. If you want that, become an accountant. Right. And you can learn the tax code for 2019, 2020, and you will have all of it. Right. And there is a complete body of knowledge and you can say it fits in this box and I have mastery of it. And the best you're going to get when you are pursuing an art and when you're pursuing writing is I have mastery over certain tools. But my job today is to make the th- is to make something better than it than i made yesterday yes and that's going to be my job tomorrow so i am pretty much condemning myself to a profession where i'm never going to be satisfied and where um where failure isn't simply always an option. Failure is always a necessary option. You, you will not create anything worthwhile if you are not absolutely willing to create something that is abysmal and horrible. Mediocrity is condemned to mediocrity, and I really believe that. But if you want to create something great, then you have to be willing to create something horrible. Um, you have to be willing to fall. You've got to take that risk, yeah. Yeah, because because what good writing is, good writing relies on an emotional truth. And it doesn't matter what the story is. It doesn't matter if you're writing about, you know, Winnie the Pooh or a hyper-intelligent shade of the color blue or immortal mercenaries or, you know, the barista down the corner. The emotional truths of these characters are tangible things that the audience must be able to connect with. And to do that means that you have to be emotionally honest. And to be emotionally honest, in turn, requires uh, allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And that's hard to do. 
Never mind the technical aspects of writing, because you can master the technical aspects of writing. You can be like, I know how to use Microsoft Word. I am a very quick typist, right? I, you can do, you know, I know how to construct a sentence. I can even tell you, you know, the technical requirements for a modern screenplay or when those things you can get mastery of. Um, it, it it's all of the things, it's all of the intangibles that you're forever fighting with. Yeah, none of those things will make you a writer. Right. The only way you're going to find success with the intangibles is by doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and picking yourself up every day, every time it fails, and putting your seat in the chair every day, even when you don't want to. And it's, you know, uh, it, 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 <laughs> I am fond of saying that there's a reason why so many writers are dysfunctional people. It does take a certain, I mean, you know, and the fact is that writers are the people who do actually thrive in those circumstances. You know, that what you've described, obviously, to many people sounds horrible. And objectively, it is, but... <laughs> It's yeah. also, you know, it is. We are the people who, in that environment, we go. Actually, yeah, yeah, I can, I can do this. It's fine. Well, and there's, you know, there's a Harlan Ellison bit where he talks about, you know, the first duty of any writer is to discourage all other writers um, effectively. It's to say that you know you don't want to do this, and there is a truth to it i mean I, I i've equated writing uh to an illness or an addiction quite frequently in the past and i think and i do for me feel that that's the case that if there were other things i could do successfully i'd probably be doing them the problem i have is that if i go two three four days and i haven't written uh i for lack of a better way to put it i go into withdrawal i become very difficult to be around. I am unhappy. I am, uh, you know, grumpy and melancholic and nothing makes me happy and I'm snappish. And, and then I'll remember, oh, I haven't written, you know, and I'll write and it may not be any good, but at least having done it, I'll feel better about myself. I'll have, yeah. oh, I have self-worth again. You know, I, I did it. <laughs> Whether or not what you write in those instances is good is almost immaterial because, and this is something I've talked about with many people on this show, because it's never any good. <laughs> the first draft is never any good. And that's, we know that and we expect that. So yeah, you know, what's important is scratching that itch, not mm -hmm. crafting the perfect sentence when you do. It, it is the commitment to, in this instance, the craft. You know, if you are going to write, a writer writes. It's the simplest definition. A writer writes. And there are attendant questions that come with that um, because it is an inadequate answer to say a writer writes, period. If that's true, then why does it matter that you read it? Right? Mm. If, if, if all a writer does is write, then write it and put it in a drawer and there you go. But that's not what we're after. On some level, we are writing because we want other people to read it. We want it shared. We are trying to say something and we feel, and this is the other, one of the other many 
paradoxes of being a writer. You know, we we are plagued by self-doubt and feelings of inadequacy that we cannot do the thing we are trying to do, that we are never going to be good enough. And at the same time, we're possessed with the arrogance to believe that you should read it anyway. And give us money to read it. Exactly. <laughs> I am creating this thing that I think is crap, but I would like you, Anthony, to please pay me so you can have the pleasure of reading it. And it's yep. like, really? Um, <laughs> I've talked about this many times before. Yeah. Yeah, I, I even gave a talk about this, call it the ego and humility, you know, the simultaneous <laughs> ego and humility in every, not just writer, I think that's every creator. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it is a remarkable I say and and to be a writer is to embrace that paradox on some level yeah uh, absolutely writers make podcasts about writing i mean that that's <laughs> that's the proof right there you know yeah. writers writers read books about what other writers think about writing and then we throw them across the room because they're wrong or we underline things because they're absolutely right or are you implying i'm obsessed find me one who isn't <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you know, it's funny. I I agree with everything you've said. And yet where we differ is that I take a certain, and maybe this is true of you as well, I don't know, but I take a certain delight in the fact that it will never be perfect for two reasons. One, because it means that nobody else is ever perfect either. So it means I stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's, but also because I genuinely, I like getting better. I like improving. One of the reasons that I took to Tai Chi in my youth and, and love practicing it so much is because you can never be perfect at Tai Chi. Never. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as like a Tai Chi, a perfect 100% Tai Chi Grand Marshal or something. It's one of those arts where you know, even if somebody else could look at you and go, oh, that was, that was perfect. You know it's not. You know where you can improve. Even if nobody else can see it, that little voice inside of you goes, no, 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 you could do that a little bit better. And you know you could. And that to me is, again, not just writing, but the act of all creation. You know, if I'm writing music or, yeah, making this podcast or whatever I'm doing, I always know that could be better. It's good enough for now, but next time I'll do it better. Yeah, I think the difference there is it's never good enough for now. Um, it's, just as, it's just the best I can do in the time allowed. Well, that's kind of what I mean. I do think this is an important aspect. I talk about fear. Um, I think that if you're not scaring yourself with what you're trying to do, um, if you if you do not find yourself, it doesn't have to be all the time, but I think with some degree of consistency, confronting moments in your process where you are looking at your work and, and you are genuinely asking yourself, I don't know if I can do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I can't pull off this scene, if I cannot, if I cannot thread this needle, if I cannot interact with this idea that is perhaps dangerous in some way, or at least I find dangerous that frightens me. If you don't find yourself encountering those moments, I suspect I, I I wouldn't say that you're doing something wrong, but I think that one of the one of the most crucial parts of for me of being a writer is um, 
is having the courage to face those moments, to, to, to scare myself and to try it anyway. Like I say, you have to embrace the fail. And, and, and that means if you're really doing it, that means that you are testing yourself constantly. Um, I talk a lot when I talk about that, about a moment in the novel shooting at midnight, Mm. um, where Bridget the, the the protagonist in first person is being searched by a rotten guy. I mean, and this guy has been, and it has made it clear what he thinks of Bridget throughout the novel when he's encountered her and um, has been reductive and objectifying and misogynistic. And now he, in the course of the story has a moment where he gets to put his hands on her any way he wants and she can't do anything about it. And it's a first person narrative. So confronting that in the narrative was a real question. How is she going to describe this? How is she going to relay to the reader this moment? And it's not simply relaying to the reader, the uh, physical actions of the moment. It's, the emotional impact, right? What is the truth of what is happening here? Yeah. And how do you execute that for me? It was, and how, how can I execute that, you know, as a white middle-class guy in a way that is truthful, fair, not purient, right? Not, not titillating, but honest. Yeah. I mean, it, it should, it, it, it needs to be, it, it needs to be this humiliating moment of powerlessness for my protagonist. And, yeah, I remember staring at that for a while and going, well, you know, and ultimately realizing that there wasn't a choice. It was just, you're going to have to tell it the way she would have told it. She's going to share this with the reader. She's not going to pretend it didn't happen. She's certainly not going to pretend that she liked it. Um. But she's going to be honest. It's a moment where the truth comes out from your knowledge of the character. Because, but that was what the third book, I think. Keeper Finders. Oh, was it Smoker? I think it's the fourth. Then we did shooting. Then it was critical. Yeah. So by that point, and this was the first novel, I believe, where she was first person. Yeah, she's the. It's the first time that she narrates. Yeah, but she'd been in all the others, so you knew the character really well by that point. Yeah, though knowing her really well and then, as I say, going into the first-person POV of this character who is absolutely about as far from my personal experience as I could get, um, you know, there was some heavy lifting involved there for me. You know, I think it works. I think shooting is actually a very good novel, um, if I may say that about myself. But yeah, I mean, you know, the thing that brings it up is, you know, I I remember the terror of that moment and being like, "Uh oh, (laughs) I have written myself into this corner and this is the only way, the only way out is through. Right. And I've got to do it now. As you say, facing that fear and kind of going, okay, well, I've never done this before and I don't know if I can pull it off, but I've got to try. And that's, I think if you don't have that, as you say, with and sometimes it's not always in as dramatic a fashion as that. But if you don't have some element of that, then you're, the chances of you producing 
your best work are very slim. And Mm -hmm. no matter what I'm writing, you know, no matter how sort of big or small the project, no matter what it is, I always try to go, okay, this is going to be the best thing I've written so far. And I fully in the knowledge that in six months time, I'll be writing something else and going, okay, this is going to be the best thing I've written so far. And I'm okay with that, but I have to at least put everything into what I'm writing at the moment. And as you say, that does involve a certain amount of trying new things and taking those risks. Yeah. I think for me, it's less conscious. Um, and now I'm going to give, you know, my best foot forward. It, it's just, I, I think I long ago internalized it. Um, well, I think I have as well. It's just that I'm also very, I have a lot of hindsight, I guess. <laughs> very yeah, good. Well, to some, you know, looking back and going, okay, so this is how it, my brain works or whatever. <laughs> no, uh, you're the one who's doing the podcast about it. So, I mean, clearly <laughs> you are spending a lot more time uh, in self-analysis, I think, in the process. I'm introspective about it, but I also find sometimes that I don't want to look too closely. Um, I understand that completely. What actually got me out of that was, uh, I think it was Brian Eno, who one of my heroes, uh, who ha- said that he had the same thing, that for years he didn't, he, re- he was afraid of analyzing his creative process because he was worried that if he looked too hard, if he yeah. tried to understand it too deeply, that it would somehow dry up, you know, that it would kind of run out and he would stop being inspired and all that sort of stuff. And then what he found actually, once he got over that and decided he was going to do it, what he found was that he was more creative when he was aware of how his process worked. And so, I mean, I don't, you know, I certainly wouldn't put myself on a level with somebody like Brian Eno, but I take heart that somebody who is as magnificently creative as him can unflinchingly look at his own process and mm-hmm. you know have it not destroy his his capabilities mm-hmm. as it were i could see that i <clears throat> i go i go hot and cold um but you know i mean i had a period for about 4 years where i was so broken i wasn't really capable of working i had i had i i had traumatically injured myself to such an extent that um and Joe Jackson talks about something similar in in, in his autobiography. Uh, it was painful to even contemplate writing or to be in particular around comics. Um, like I would walk into a comic book store and have a panic attack. And coming back from that, I think I was just so damn grateful to be able to write again and not be in tears that I, you know, I have been, um, I have been very grateful for whatever, whatever flits back in my head, um, that allowed me to work through it. Right. Yeah. No, I, that's fair enough. I mean, again, a big part of this show is emphasizing that everybody's process is different and yeah. everybody works differently. And if it is working for you, you know, don't, don't change it. Well, uh, anec- anecdotally, just related to that, uh, I I am always, and I've, uh, I've mentioned this before, but I, I figure this is a safe company to do it in. Um, when I was at Vassar College my senior year, I, I was in a senior seminar for fiction, 
And uh, it was the only proper fiction writing class that I really did uh, in college. All my other writing I had been doing, you know, on my own. And I had gotten into the class despite uh, failing for the previous three years to get into any fiction writing class. One of the things that would happen in the seminar was that every so often the professor would have, you know, quote unquote, professional writers uh, come and speak to us. And I remember after about the fourth or fifth one came in, one of my classmates, uh, the professor's name was Frank Bergon. Um, uh, one of my classmates said, uh, I, I've come to a conclusion. And Bergon said, uh, and, and what is that? And he said, they're all lying. He says, they don't know how they do what they do. Every one of them is saying something different. Every one of them is wrong. And, you know, Bergon's response was perhaps, or perhaps every one of them is right. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And it was like, and I remember that I took away from, you know, it was like, not only was that a nice turn of phrase, but it is, and you're absolutely right. It's what works for you. And, you know, what works for me is different on any given day. Um, sometimes, the story comes because I've got a pad of paper and a pencil and I jot notes down. And sometimes it's, you know, I've got to do index cards and sometimes it's me doing a mind map. And sometimes it's me writing a detailed outline as if I'm writing an abstract for a, a research paper. And sometimes it's me writing a 30,000 word synopsis of the work so that all I end up actually doing is adding some adjectives and dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Filling in the gaps. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes in the more that you do it, I think the more you, you become armed with different weapons for, 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 for mounting the siege on the story, right? You know, it's like, ah, catapults this time, you know, we're going to need an arbalest now or whatnot. And sometimes you can sneak in, uh, you know, by swimming the moat. And sometimes you have to be dropped in by helicopter. And sometimes you got to scale the wall, you know, hand over hand. But every one of the techniques is valid or the validity that the technique becomes apparent once you get to it you know what i mean right. it, well it worked this time so it works but hang on though i mean yes every technique is valid if it works but there aren't many writers who will adopt so many different techniques like that how do you and i'm assuming it's not a case of oh it's a screenplay so i'll get the index cards out oh it's a comic book so i'll do a mind map i'm guessing you're saying that the medium doesn't actually affect which method you use. Well, the medium, the medium will dictate for me certain techniques. Absolutely. Right. If I am writing a comic book script and there are plenty, and I don't know if you do this, you know, there are plenty of comic book writers who will thumbnail their pages, for instance. Oh, no, I, I don't do that. But what I often will do is do um, a sort of text thumbnail, you know, like 22 mm -hmm. lines or whatever and just write right. five words about each page. Right. And sometimes I will do something very similar. Sometimes I will have a book map, right? I have printed up, for instance, for, for, for Lazarus. Um, I have a stack of uh, book maps that are for, you know, what we call the 32-page self-cover, right? 
Mm-hmm. And and incidentally, those are now of no use to me because we're doing sixty four page, you know, quarterlies. But <laughs> um, but I will I will have a book map, and what I will sometimes do is I will take that book map, then I will take my notebook, and I will on the book map write the words of what is happening on these pages, and then on my notes, I will elaborate them somewhat, and then I will take all that and go to scripting sometimes, right? Sometimes I will work just off of the book map. Sometimes I will work just off of the notepad. Sometimes I won't work off of either. I'll just start typing. Um, Sometimes I will type using Microsoft Word. Sometimes I will type in Scrivener because Scrivener is also where I have all my other world-building notes. Wait, you don't even use the same writing software from... No. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're yeah. driving me mad. <laughs> and 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 I'll tell you why uh, why that's the case. Um, my collaborator on Lazarus, the, the, the wonderfully talented Michael Lark, wants the scripts delivered to him in a certain way, right? So because Michael, when he gets the scripts, will reformat them to fit his workflow. So my formatting style uh, when I am writing it is a very different format than he will turn it into anyway. So it becomes a question of just writing it for me. If I'm writing Black Magic, where I'm collaborating with Nicola Scott, Nicola wants a very cleanly formatted script. She wants all the dialogue properly numbered. She wants all the spaces in there. She wants the page breaks in there. Um, She wants me at my most clear and refined. So for Nicola, this script is a very pristine, clean document. And Michael wants a different kind of clarity from me. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I will compose a script, say, in Scrivener and export it and then reformat it in Microsoft Word. Sometimes I'll write straight in Word. Uh, I've been using Highland 2 lately. Oh, yeah. I use that for screenplays, yeah. And I really, really like it, and I'm really, really angry that they don't have an iOS version yet. They're working on it. <laughs> I, yes, I know. They told me that six months ago. And I don't know how they're spending their quarantine, but I would like them to hurry it up because I am desperate to get Highland on my iPad. Um, I, I got a new iPad Pro with the Magic Keyboard. And now we're deep in the weeds of now. Now we're in the fetish talk that writers get into. Um, as I sit here staring at my quirky writer keyboard as we talk, right? But I really like the freedom that that iPad is giving me. That is finally hit to me an iteration of the uh, portability and lightweight sort of agility that I have been after, but now I want this program on it because I find Highland uh, 2 so agile and so ideal for so much of what I do that it burns me up that I have to use it on my laptop. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) come on, guys. If there was ever a writing application that was made to be on an iPad, it's that program. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so I have, I have more than one set. Is it ready yet? Um, I hate, 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 and I had to because it's the industry standard. I hate Final Draft. Oh, everybody hates Final Draft. Um, I, I used um, Fade In. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, which I quite like. Um, I really like Fade In. Again, talk about something that's very lightweight and agile. Uh, but yeah, Final Draft is just... Final Draft has the power, and I don't know what this is, right? I've been doing this for... Over 30 years, writing, like, every day. I know how to type. Final Draft inserts typos. <laughs> and, and I don't think I'm wrong about it. I think there's something in the coding where it screws things up. Uh, because I will literally look at a sentence that I know I typed correctly, and it will have words in it I did not type. And all I can think when I look at that is, wow, this is the industry standard program? Oh, there are many, many other reasons to wonder about that with Final Draft. <laughs> oh, let us let us not descend that rabbit hole, my friend, else we will never, never emerge. Let it just be stated on the record that um, uh, Final Draft is not my choice. F funnily enough. I'm I'm in the middle of uh, not the middle actually I should say I'm at the start I'm about sixteen seventeen thousand words into writing a novel as we record this and mm -hmm. uh, I've noticed I'm working in Scrivener um, and because I do everything in Scrivener and I've noticed that it keeps and I don't know if this is Scrivener or like Apple you know Mac OS or something but when I'll it keeps replacing two T O with two T O and uh -huh. I know I know that I typed it correctly. But something uh -huh. in the autocorrect thinks that I meant to type T double O, and it's it's maddening, absolutely maddening. I'm reminded of the of the the Raymond Chandler line about when I split an infinitive, God damn it, I split it so it shall stay split. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I'd like to say I, I think it's I think it is the Mac autocorrect that's doing it for me as well. But yeah. let's not dwell on that one too much. So. Oh, why not? It's part of the process, man. The vexations, <laughs> isn't it? That's you true, know? I suppose. It's true. But so the planning stage, though, like the, the business, this business of, you know, sometimes you'll use a mind map or sometimes you'll use cards. Sometimes you'll write a synopsis. How, how do you decide which of those methods you're going to use? Is it pure instinct or do you start on one and realize, oh, no, no, this isn't working. I need to try something else. Um, I mean, this is the, the, here's the cliche answer, right? It always starts with the idea and however the idea comes and the idea can come in for me, any number of forms. It can be, uh, there is a moment and I am seeing the moment with remarkable clarity. That's how you get Lazarus, for instance. Um, there is a character and I see the character with remarkable clarity and that character is speaking to me so for instance that's the old guard um it can be an act of very deliberate construction i.e i want to write a private investigator novel but the pi novel is glutted and in the era in which i am considering this I am particularly fascinated by personal protection. What happens if I try to write a private eye novel where the main character is actually a bodyguard? Oh, I discover I'm writing a whole new genre. Um, 
and therefore I am constructing everything with deliberation. Who is my protagonist? What are the needs of the protagonist of this genre? What am I trying to, you know, I, I did an academic study on the PI novel. So when it comes to Atticus and the Kodiak novels, Atticus is as malice of forethought created a character as I have ever created. Everything about him was a deliberate choice because was I was constructed, yeah, yeah, and and was constructed to answer uh, what I personally felt the demands of that particular genre were and the strengths of it and and how I wished to leverage it and utilize it. So now it becomes a question of all right, so where is the story coming from? I am not a I was about to say I'm not a theme-first writer, but that's not true. Um, I do a lot of writing from anger. I see things that uh, outrage me. And outrage is the word in the way that I answer the injustices of the world is I try to write about them. And and I use a lot of that for fuel. I I write out of rage a lot. Um, So sometimes it will be... You know, there is an injustice that I have finished reading A Crime So Monstrous uh, by E. Benjamin Skinner. And I am so sickened and disgusted by the fact that uh, slavery is still rampant in the world in 2016 or 2012 or whenever I read it, never mind this moment in 2020, I... I can't let it go and I have to write about it. So now I know that this is going to be forming the story. Right. Um, And that for instance, will drive research and then the research will suggest a narrative form. It will say, well, the story is going to have to move in this way. And then as I figure out how the story is going to have to move, you know, maybe I will start writing it. And then have to stop and go, okay, wait, what am I doing now? Where do I go? Or maybe it is, no, sit it down with all the notes and break it down and write the synopsis. And and the synopsis isn't coming. Uh-oh, okay, well, let's try a different tactic. Let's, let's see what happens if I put them down on note cards. These are the beats that I know I want to hit. What happens if I shuffle them around? Or... I'm lost. I just, I am in the middle of this thing and I am so lost. I, I'm going to get out uh, the whiteboard and I'm going to lay it down on the table in the basement and I'm going to grab, you know, all my multicolored markers and I'm just going to start writing words and drawing circles and linking them. And after I'm done with that particular 30 minutes frenzied mess, uh, we'll try to take a look at it and go, is there sense to be found here? Oh, look. So it it is to go back to the the the, the siege of, of the story analogy, which I uh, stole from Stephen King. Right, it is a question. Well, what tools do I need to get through the wall? Um, I know the story is there, and and sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it isn't. I will say the one thing that experience has taught me is that. When it isn't, uh, and I have already begun writing, it is almost invariably because I have made a mistake. And it is a mistake I have known I was making when I made it and did not listen to myself 
when in the midst of typing or whatever I was doing, the bell went off in the back of my head and the little voice said, um, excuse us. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, with arrogance and passion said, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I'm working. It'll be fine. Yeah. I know that voice. <laughs> yeah. And then invariably it's not fine. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've crashed into the hedge and I'm going, well, how did I get here? And I will discover that 30,000 words prior, um, I made a mistake that I saw myself making. You know, my first couple novels, I did that a lot. I got much better at hearing it and, and, and did finally get myself to a point where when the bell went off, I would, I would literally push myself back from my desk and hands would shoot up from the keyboard, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, and, and literally it would be like I was holding my hands up. Um, the most definitive lesson of that was critical space. You know, I sat down to write critical space dead certain I knew how that novel was going to end. I knew it from the start. I knew it. I had known for a book in that and a half how that one was going to end. And I got to the end of part one and I was all set to start part two and every single character down tools and walked out on me. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not really exaggerating. And I've heard some writers, I did a, a, a writer's convention. There's a mystery writer's convention called Bowser con. Mm-hmm. And I did it in Bristol I attended the Bristol one in 2000 and forever. And I was on a panel as one is wants to be on at these things with um, a couple of the writers. And I remember one of the writers on the panel getting really snooty and arrogant about my characters. Don't talk to me. Any writer who says that needs to have their head examined. Characters don't talk to you. They do what I want them to do. And all I can think is then you're not very good. <laughs> With your, your characteristic humility. <laughs> well, I didn't say that. <laughs> okay. you know? But all I could think was then you're not doing it right. Because if you're not listening to your characters, if you're just shoving them around like they're pieces on a chessboard, you're not that that's not that's not what writing is. That's not what storytelling is. I just want to pick up on that because I wrote, I literally wrote a piece about this for the Crime Writers Association like a month ago. Yeah. My theory about characters talking to us is like, of course, it's not literally true, but what we mean by it, you know, as I say, my theory is anyway, what we mean by it is that over the course of writing the character, we have gotten to know them so well. Yeah, that's precisely what we mean. Or, or at least good enough that we come to a point where the plot requires them to do something and then at the back of our head, the little voice says, but they wouldn't do that. But but for me, it's not even that. And I do think there is something a little more, you know, perhaps this is a little Grant Morrison-y, Alan Morey, but <laughs> I think there's something a little more magical to it. Because I think the better you know your characters and the more holy you know your characters, the more realized they become. And the only place they are ever going to live, first and foremost, is in your head. Yeah. And I don't think about my characters as constructions. That's not who they are. When they have formed, they are people. So when I am so so the alchemy and there is an element of real alchemy and magic to this craft, right? It it, it is the act of at, at its most basic, it is a magical act because what are you doing when you're writing in English? You are taking 26 arbitrary symbols 
they don't mean anything. I mean, look, look at your keyboard right now and look at your H key and tell me that that means something. It doesn't. It's a pictogram that we have assigned, right, a value to. And when put next to other pictograms, we say it makes a certain sound that means a certain thing. So all writing is, is moving these symbols about over and over again, in trying to get them into a sequence where I can make you feel something. That is by definition a spell. That is, by definition, an act of creation being imposed on somebody else. That does sound very (laughs) Grant-like. But it's true. I mean, think about it. If you have, and if you are fair and honest to your characters, right, as as you just said, if you have spent all that time with them, then they are manifesting inside of you. And well, and, and they may... They may be using you as the filter still, and that may be the voice that said, well, they, and it's the difference between saying, well, Elena wouldn't do that, and Elena telling me I wouldn't do that. And I can't tell you in that moment in critical space, if it was Atticus and Elena saying, dude, we don't know what novel you think you're writing, but that ain't it. Or if it was me realizing that everything I had thought was wrong because it didn't fit with the characters. All I know is that I hit that at full speed and it was like driving a Ferrari into a brick wall. Yeah, the end result was the same. Yeah, I mean, I wiped out totally and I panicked. I had a panic attack. I And, and you know this as a novelist. There's a process, especially in long form, when... And for me, it's about the 30,000 word mark uh, where you have entered the tunnel of the work and you are so far in that you cannot see the light behind you, right? You don't know where you started and you cannot see the light that you're headed towards. And now you are on faith. It's the grind. Yeah. Yeah. It is the scariest part of the work. And it's also, of course, the most substantial part of the work. You are now going to spend the majority of the process working on the faith that you will get where you want to go. And yeah, man, I wiped out so hard and the panic attack that came from it. And then the resultant uh, ability to listen to the characters and realize what the story was that they were trying to get me to tell. Uh, and then the research that I had to do to execute it. And I think in many ways, Critical is probably one of my most accomplished novels. I wouldn't, I don't know if it's best. I'm very bad at determining that. Well, that, that's but a Critical completely Space arbitrary. Works. Yeah, that's a completely arbitrary judgment. Anyway, I was going to say what I, I know that Critical Space has its, its critics, um, but it is without doubt, unlike any other novel you had written before yeah uh and in and in a very accomplished fashion so yeah you know that alone is remarkable i remember reading it and going like well this is this is not what i was yeah no he, from he the went next Kodiak entirely book. left yes <laughs> yeah yeah it, it 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 is it is a sea change book in the series yeah. um and it and it uh and it breaks a lot of genre conventions in a way um and there are people who responded really poorly and not without reason. Um, 
No, it depends what you want from the from a series, doesn't it? You know, whether you just want absolutely the same as the last book, but with a different plot, or whether you want something, yeah, challenging and and different. Um, yeah, I, I'm almost afraid to ask now. <laughs> <laughs> the next question which i was going to ask like what's your revision process when you get to the end be it a script or a novel or whatever how do you then you know do you do full-throated complete draft revisions or do you go in and, and pick at it or what um again it'll depend on the work but in the main i think the thing that marks the revision process and again it's different depending on the medium um I find it, and this is a product of my age, right? This is, I admit this wholly. I am 50 years old and I had my first novel published when I was 24. And back then you would send the hard copy, you would print it out and you would send the hard copy to your editor and you would get the manuscript back with the query slips on it and so on. And so for me, editing and, 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 and revision is a tactile process. I want the paper in my hand, especially if it's long form. Mm-hmm. So trees, trees suffer um, on long form works with me. Uh, I, I, I will double side and, and I will reuse, but I tend to have to work from printout and I will work with, you know, a pencil because like most writers, I fetishize my tools, right? I have my favorite pencil <laughs> and I have my favorite pens and, and I have my favorite type of, you know, post-it note or whatever. And and then it will be the getting under the hood process. I don't like first drafts and I'm I'm very quick um, in, in, in meaning that I, I write quickly i'm a very quick typist and so a first draft is 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 there's a reason it's called the vomit draft right you know yeah. I mean, it's, it's get it out as fast as i can well i know you're one of those people who can regularly put out pump out thousands and thousands of words a yes. day when you need to yeah um and that's and that's a discipline thing right i've trained myself to do it and Going into a novel, I will set myself word counts for the day. And the first week, I will not make them. You know, I will I will accelerate up to them. But by the time I, you know, hit the second week, I'll, I'll hit my 3,000 to 5,000 words a day. And I am very good in the main at not letting perfect be the enemy of good in my drafts. So that... I can stand by a sentence that I know isn't terrific um, and just move on to the next one because I, I know I will go back to it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then what happens, especially when I'm writing a novel is I actually print off the day's writing. Uh, it goes into a binder and the way I start the next day. Uh, and this is very specific technique for long form prose. This is not the same when I'm working in comics or in uh, screenplay, but in long form prose, uh, I have two things I do. One is that print off because the first thing I do the next day is reread and make my first pass edits so that when I then sit down to get back to work in front of the keyboard, I start by making the changes of, to the previous day's work. 
these won't be huge changes, right? These will be correcting typos or clarifying an idea. Grammar changes and stuff. Yeah, yeah or or trying to fix if if I really screwed something up, maybe a change there. But that and the second technique that I use make it easier to slip back in to the work. And the second technique is when I'm in long form, I never ever stop uh at the end of a sentence. Oh, you're one of those leave yourself some a train rolling downhill as it were. You got it. I don't stop at the end of a sentence. I will never stop at the end of a chapter. That's death. Uh I will rarely stop at the end of a paragraph. If I can, I will stop smack dab in the middle of a paragraph in the middle of a sentence because as I've described that sort of daily return process, by the time I get there, my head is already back into what I was going to do. And so it is simply an issue of complete the sentence and move on. And it is a real thing. And you know it's a real thing. Writers deal with this all the time. It saves me the mental effort, or it reduces the mental effort of needing to, quote unquote, get back into the zone, end quote. Yeah. And I know I, I, there are people I say that to, and they look at me as if I have said, I sacrifice a cow. Um, <laughs> I mean, they really do look at you like you're, are you out of your mind? Because to most any writer, you have literally said, I stop with an unresolved chord. And you can just hear their teeth grinding at the thought of not having completed the idea. Well, that's what that was going to be my question, because I can understand from a sort of a, a work process and a discipline point of view, I can absolutely see how it works and sort of why you do it and the advantages. But doesn't it drive you mad to stop in the middle of a sentence when no. you know, presumably, how that sentence is going to end? Yeah, see, that's why I love it. <laughs> I, uh, here's, here, let, let, let me flip it around for you. Here's the judo on it. Would you rather sit down knowing exactly what you're going to be writing? Or do you want to sit down after you've finished your day's work the next day, not sure where to start? Well, I don't start not knowing where I'm going to go, but I do generally start with a new bit, as it were. I like to try and get everything that's in my head down each day and then start afresh the next day. But I generally, I know where I'm going, you see, because I always outline. Yeah. I'm an investor outliner, so I don't have the issue of not knowing what I'm yeah, going to you are you, you have always been a structuralist, and I, um, and I fully respect that. Uh, I am not. Um, <laughs> I am one of those writers who, I, I am very suspicious of building like i said you know and 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 i recognize this when when you talk about outlining uh so don't don't take this the wrong way but there is something in my personality that is suspicious of building anything that looks remotely like guide rails (laughs) you know i i i i want um as much freedom so that the purpose of a synopsis uh, or an outline for me is entirely it's a subjective document, not an objective one yeah it's entirely a here are some suggestions of where your story could go as opposed to this is where the story is going to go um and that's a personality thing for me entirely yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, my skin is thick enough that I don't worry. I'm not going to take offense. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> well, and, and you said at the top, and this is the case, right? It, it's what works for whoever, whenever. Exactly. That, you know, as, as, as Burgone said, maybe they're all right. You know, maybe everybody's technique is the right one. So I'm going to guess. Does this mean that you're uh, an entirely linear writer then? You know, you start at the start, you go through to the end, uh, and that's it. Uh, in the main, yeah. Uh, in the main, it's very rare that I will write a scene to be slotted in later. Um, what I will almost always do is write in a very linear fashion and then maybe move things around. But not until after you've finished the draft. Well, I mean, I can do it, you know, at a certain point. Like if I'm at a certain point in the work and go, oh, this has to go here. Uh, and more often in screenplays or in comics, I find that I, uh, it, I find it more modular. Yeah. If that's, if that's the word for it. One of the techniques that I'll do when I'm having trouble in, in comics, um, Aside from, you know, what we talk about, I'll book map it or whatnot. Sometimes what I'll do, because I write full script in comics, as you know. And not only that, but I write full script as in page one, panel one, description, dialogue, panel two, description, dialogue, panel three. Yeah, same as me. Yeah. But I will find in particular if there's an idea uh, that I'm having difficulty explicating um either for purposes of the actual story or for myself or whatnot. Sometimes what I'll do is I will just start writing dialogue and I won't even attribute it. I'll just start writing, you know, this is a, what it, one character is saying and then hit hard return a couple times. And this is the response. And I'll end up with two or three pages of, of what it, I know it should sound like. And then I will go back and craft visuals around it and drop it back in and revise it. Uh, the smaller meaning, so both spatially and temporally works, right? A comic book script, for instance, for a, you know, 24-page comic or a 64-page comic. I find it easier to do that in and, and to sort of jump around back and forth. But when I'm writing a novel, it is almost universally tragically linear i mean i may know where i think it's going to end but i won't i won't write that sentence um until i have for lack of a better phrase earned it yeah i'm i'm the same with endings i, I generally won't touch the climax until i get there but i will sometimes especially if i'm writing something with multiple points of view if i know that i'm going to have you know, every so often there's going to be a chapter from a particular character's point of view that has their own arc throughout it. Uh -huh. Then I will sometimes write all of those in one go. Right. And then you of, can slot them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For that consistency sometimes, um, you know, or sometimes I'll just come to it and think, do you know what? I really fancy writing this particular chapter today rather than <laughs> the next one that comes along chronologically. Um, I'm lazy like that. I uh, I don't know if that's lazy. I I think for me that's a little bit like uh, it's a little bit like you know having your dessert first. <laughs> you know, I I, I I know that if there are bits that I'm, uh, and I suppose this says something else about my process. I tend to surprise myself more and more the older I get. You know, characters will 
will show me something that I, I, I had overlooked perhaps, or hadn't recognized, or they'll turn me in a direction that I hadn't anticipated. Um, so when I do hit those things that have somehow remained true from the start, you know, from, from the inception moment, um, I, 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 I encounter them with a certain glee <laughs> or with a certain terror. Um, there are moments, you know, for instance, in the novel series is where I've known a thing was coming for one book or two books or three books. And now, uh, I'm at the moment where that scene has to happen, where the rubber hits the road. And I, uh, I find myself, you know, I will have psyched myself out of it. I will, Mm -hmm. I will have made the moment so hyper important that I will, I will balk in the face of it. Um, the nice thing about being a writer is that, you know, once you get over the fact that, um, that you're never going to write anything that can't be improved, you also reach the liberation of killing your darlings, you know, and, and, I'm I'm pretty good about that. I I'm pretty merciless uh because I guess I've been doing it for long enough or have enough arrogance or ego. Eh, I'm pretty sure I'll come up with something else that I'm happy with. Yeah, I I think kill your darlings is something that all writers learn quickly if they want to be working productive writers. Mm-hmm. I Absolutely. I think it it just kind of the need to produce material if you are, you know, like you and I, full-time writers, and sort of once you get on that path, it just it gets hammered out of you because you know you can't afford to be that precious if you're going to actually produce enough material to keep getting work and to get paid. Absolutely, and 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 especially when you are, you know, working when you're working for others as opposed to writing for yourself. You know, I'm you know I may love this line in the screenplay, but if the actor won't say it, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it ain't there. Yeah, well, it's and I've gone. come, I've come across that with video games as well, where I, I I'll craft a beautiful line, and then you get in the booth, and the actor says it, and you're like, oh, that sounds terrible, like, yeah, because of their accent or just the way they pronounce a word or something. You're like, no, no, we've got to change that. Yeah, it and just it hits it. the hits the ear like lead. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know exactly what you're talking. I mean, exactly. And you know, when I write a screenplay because I come from a novel background, there is an element of, um, I'm pretty good with my prose and my screenplay. You know, I've had a lot of practice so that I think my screenplays are somewhat entertaining to read because they have benefited from years of writing comic book scripts and years of writing prose. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's a totally different thing when you hit the dialogue and you're like, Oh, this was a fun line. And it's like, yeah, guess what? Didn't play. Doesn't work. Come up with something else. <laughs> All right. Uh, so. Let's start to wrap this up. We're, this is already going to be a bumper length episode. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we could carry on talking for well, many, nice many thing, hours to come. The nice thing about a podcast is people can always pause it. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm really interested to hear what your answers are to some of my regular questions now. <laughs> what do you think you're pretty good at? My quote-unquote representation, unquote, would say um, I am an expert at world-building. 
at creating whole worlds and so on. And maybe I am, you know, I'm what I am really good at as is playing the logical, logical extrapolation games from a premise. Yeah. I can, I can take a premise and I can go, well, if this is true and this is true, then this must follow. And if that follows, then these things also follow. Yeah. Genuinely, I think the thing that I'm best at is character work. And I think, thank God for that, because my approach to storytelling is that storytelling is character driven. Yeah. Uh, And this goes back to that comment about, you know, my characters don't speak to me. They do what I damn well tell them to do. And it's like, okay, mine do. I I I I pick them up and I put them in a situation and begin. I can put, you know, I can put Forever Carlisle and Andromache and you know Rowan Black all in the same situation, and I will know exactly how those situations give me a different story each time because of how the characters will react to it. All right. So then, what do you wish you were better at? Oh, plot. That's funny coming from a guy who made his name writing PI novels. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, but but this is the thing, they're not PI novels. Cuz I can't write a mystery to save my life. I mean, literally the note on my first mystery was everybody thinks this guy did it and I said, "Uh-huh." And the note was, "Well, he did." It's not much of a mystery <laughs> if the suspect turns out to be the guy who did it. And this is why the Kodiak novels become something else they actually are suspense stories right they may have mystery elements but all suspense stories by definition must but they are not contingent i don't write a whodunit i stink at whodunits i mean even whiteout tells you who did it in the first eight pages that's true yeah (laughs) doesn't give everything away right but it gives you enough um i am not terrific at that and i also really bad and this has hurt me in hollywood i i don't like the MacGuffin game you know everybody has to chase after this thing for a reason everybody's got to chase after this thing for a reason and and i kind of get my hackles up at the thought that that audiences are somehow so unsophisticated that they cannot follow a character's needs that there needs to be an external plot need uh and that needs to be manifested in oh they've got a bomb or whatnot (laughs) all right finally what is something that you have read recently where the writing really impressed you and why i'll give you two uh i finally read charles portis's true grit and if you have not read it uh, it is a master class in the writer disappearing. That book is told by a woman named Maddie Ross, and you cannot convince me otherwise. Uh, I don't know who this Portis guy is who claims to have written it, <laughs> uh, but he's lying. This story is told and set down by a woman named Maddie Ross. There is a reason people go back to it over and over again. There's a reason why it's been made, you know, into a movie more than once. Um, I I cannot endorse it enough. And in point of fact, it's going to be on my reading list for the next issue of Lazarus. So I, I was 
I genuinely, and, and you're talking to a guy who works in voice and works in per, first person and has written primarily like that. And I literally, Portis is invisible. It's stunning. It's stunning. Um, and in keeping with the Western theme, I finally read Steve Hawkins Smith's Holmes on the Range, as in Sherlock Holmes on the Range. It's the first in the Holmes on the Range series of novels. And it's a hoot and a holler. And the writing is, and it's another first person. You're not going to read this prose and be like, oh, my God, this is, you know, elevated, beautiful voice. What it is, is beautifully naturalistic and perfect for the story that's being told. And infused with just the right humor um, and just the right sense of time and place that it really does just effortlessly carry you along. It's like being a cork on a stream. It's lovely. All right. Well, Greg, where can people find you online? Well, there's a website. Um, if you're desperate to check it out, it's called gregrucka.com. You're not going to find a whole lot there other than how to contact the webmaster or my representation. Um, I am uh, very anti-social media. Um, I think social media is, in the main, far more damaging to society than beneficial. Uh, So the only place that I really have any presence whatsoever right now is on Instagram, where you can find me at RuckaWriter, all one word. All right. Finally, then, what work of yours would you recommend for somebody uh, that they check out if they're not familiar with your work? I don't even know. <laughs> um, with a 30-year be- career, where do you even begin? <laughs> yeah, well, and then, you know, you want what do you want? You want a comic? Do you want a mainstream comic? Um, mainstream comic, pick up Wonder Woman Year One. Um, do you like Batman? Pick up Gotham Central. Um, do you like dystopian sci-fi? Take a look at Lazarus. Do you like spy stories? Uh, you can go to the Queen and Country comics from Oni Press, or you know, a, the first novel in the series is called A Gentleman's Game. Um, I don't know how to answer that. I kind of want to say, Anthony, you know, you've read my stuff. <laughs> yeah. Where would you start if people? The, my problem is. I'm I'm all over the place, man. So I don't even know where to begin. It's a cruel question because I know if somebody asked me the same thing, I'd be in exactly the same position. I'm like, well, what do you want? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like I get there's a whole bunch of flavors. You tell me. Yeah. You know? There's decades of stuff here. Yeah. Oh, all right, Greg. We really could have carried on talking for hours and hours. I know, but uh, our time is up. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Anthony. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they are published, can take part in Q&A episodes and more. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that's also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time. Um, and thus, oh, come on.
I, I apologize for that. I had do not disturb on, That's but of course, are. but of course the person who's allowed to bypass that just called me. 